Welcome to May I Interrupt, an eye care roundtable discussion show sponsored by Oculus. Each show we explore questions in the world of eye care and other topics with leading experts in the industry. We do this in an irreverent, yet we hope funny type of manner. I'm Craig Norman, and I'm joined by my pal, the most noteworthy, sought-after lecturer, and possibly the greatest contact lens designer since the invention of PMMA, Dr. Jason Jedlicka from Indiana University School of Optometry. Hi, Jason. How you doing, man? Hi, hi Craig. Well, I feel great now with that uh, ego-boosting intro, but uh, unfortunately, I don't keep score, so all that was for nothing, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Other than I, I, I appreciate you, Craig, um, and, and may I just add that you're looking great today? Looking great. Okay, I'll explain what that bell is in just a minute, uh, as Jason is sucking up to the moderator. for. Today. I have to start early. I need all the help I can get. Jason, we have two great guests today. Mm -hmm. Clark Chang, first of all, is Director of Specialty Lenses in the Corny Department at Will's Eye. He's the host of the popular podcast show, Chang Reaction, and he's been named as the top doctor of 2020 by the National Keratoconus Foundation. Congratulations, Clark. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you. Over a decade of research experiences in uh, corneal crosslinking and other advanced treatments, Clark has published extensively on keratoconus management, other innovative contact lens technologies, and modern refractive surgeries. And he is ubiquitous. He's kind of everywhere you look, uh, whether it's online or at meetings or, or whatever. Uh, Clark pops up all the time. Hey, Craig. Can I yes, just sir. say your vocabulary never fails to amaze me? Ubiquitous? Yes. I practiced it all day. Uh, I can tell. <laughs> you had it down. You pronounced I did. it right. Thank, thank you. Thought, thank you, Jason. Yeah. Really? Well, that, that's two dings now. May I just say, Craig, you're the most handsome person in the I, world? Yeah. <laughs> I learned another word today that's almost like ubiquitous. It's obnoxious. <laughs> Oh, you pronounced that one right, too. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. I don't well, say anymore. I, I've, I've heard it enough, oh. and I'm able to repeat it. Got it. Also, we have uh, Andy Morgenstein with us. Andy's the founder of OcuSolve, a healthcare uh, and management company. He's a clinician with special interest and expertise in anterior segment ocular disease, refractive surgery, corneal cataract disease detection, which we're going to be talking about a lot today, diagnosis and its treatment. Uh, he's a graduate of Boston University, uh, Nova uh, Southeastern University College of Optometry, and he completed his training at the esteemed Baskin Palmer Eye Institute at the Miami uh, University of Miami School of Medicine. Andy, thanks so much for you two spending your time with us. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, just to beat Clark, I think you look outstanding today, and you uh, I can actually smell you from here, and you smell great. Wow. I can't give you any bonus points there, Andy. <laughs> Jason, I just have to say you don't stand a chance in health. I know. I feel it already. Okay. So let me explain. So our format is this. We're going to ask three different sets of questions today. We're going to ask them of all three of you, and the topic today is primarily keratoconus. Uh, we are going to give you two to three minutes for each of these sections or so give or take. If you say something that is really astute or you suck up to the moderator, you'll get a ring. We count up the number of rings a couple of different times uh, towards the or, or throughout the uh, episode today. And then at the end, we declare a winner. And the winner receives 
absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, but you might like it. Other than that, there are no rules except for the uh, name of the show, and that is May I Interrupt. And at any time, you can jump in and interrupt. We actually gladly uh, like that, especially if you can uh, add something uh, that is either more meaningful than the present uh, speaker, or if you want to take a shot at him, that would be fine also. Pretty much uh, anytime I'm speaking, you can interrupt and be more meaningful, so. What, um, we muted him, didn't we? <laughs> okay, so let's get started. Here's what we're going to do. Jason, as always, we start with you so you get a chance to get on the board before anybody yeah. else. Now, all of you guys are considered experts in keratoconus. If you could share with us, how has managing keratoconus in the practice changed in the last five years? Wow, the last five years, huh? Um, May I interrupt? Oh, sure, I'm sorry. go that right ahead. Not, I'm sorry, that was not for me. I'm oh, sorry, okay. Jason. Well, I mean... I think that the management in the last five years, I don't know that it's changed that much for me. I feel like, um, you know, we're, we're doing a better job of using our instrumentation to um, look for subtle signs of progression because we're, we're more, um, we're more into treating and, and doing the cross-linking, you know, at the most appropriate time. Um, and I think probably we're, we're just, more careful about recommending it and talking about it with patients. Um, I know, for example, we I've got a patient that was referred in that's coming in this evening, and um, we already have a diagnosis, but we're going to spend a lot of time tonight just talking about the long-term picture for this patient, um, what can be done now and in the future, and then we'll talk about vision correction options and not have anything you know necessarily decided, but be open-minded about what works for the individual patient to give them the best lifetime of vision we can ahead of them. Okay, so interesting, but to answer the question. Oh, did I dodge uh, it? May I interrupt? <laughs> Andy, go right ahead. Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having us on. Uh, Clark and I have been interrupting our, each other for the better part of the last decade. So I think this is going to become old hat. And, um, and you know, we've known, all of us have known each other for years now. Um, I will say I, I disagree with Jason a little bit. I, you know, when he, his original statement was it, he doesn't know how much it's changed over the last five years. And I find that ironic coming from someone who designed uh, such a great lens because um, and not to suck up to moderator number two, but um, you know, the device that he's worked on um, as the iterations have come out, as the information has come out, it's actually become um, easier and easier to fit these patients properly with these great design, you know, well-designed lens, Jason, uh, and the work that he's done um, being one of them. Secondarily, I think, um, I, I think if you look at the, um, you know, Andy Morgenstern, the individual, and then, you know, the greater population of doctors of optometry and, and ophthalmologists out there, I think it's become a much easier diagnosis to talk to patients about because we've learned so much more in population studies and how much this affects uh, the population out there where we're actually much more likely to uh, look for the disease of keratoconus and corneal ectasias uh, earlier in the eye exam and prioritize it higher in, in what we're doing. Um, that being said, um, I think this is an evolutionary game that we're playing with corneal ectasias and keratoconus. We're all gonna get better. We're all gonna understand more. We're each we're gonna get better when we get uh, better uh, contact lenses and designs 
and also devices out there. Bing bong. All right, I'm getting I'm getting the gong show hook. Well, so, I'm giving you my own dings. So. so I think I'm a little too late to interrupt, but I do have something to add. I, I want to, oh, I, am I getting a bonus ding? Yay for me. Okay, so um, I think the, I actually think that there's even more change than what both of the, uh, what both of them have said. And that is, I think we've turned Keratoconus from a management of despair to actually giving patient a lot of hope. Um, and that is not just coming from cross-linking, stabilizing uh, their condition that we never knew to do, that we could do, and also uh, so many different gray lens designs, such as the one that Jason designs, uh, has given patients a lot of quality of their, the visual quality and the quality of their life back. So I think now it's about giving them hope as well as customizing treatments that fits their lifestyle, that fits their different stage of their condition, wherever they may be at. So it's very different from, say, five years. In so, addition, the treatment, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. May I interrupt? Um, you may, go. Yeah. Um, to add on to Clark, to have that discussion earlier and earlier is happening. Uh, over the last five years, we, we've started having those discussions on optimization of vision and optimization of treatment, as, as Clark was alluding to uh, earlier and earlier in the game. So it really provides uh, increased quality of life for these patients. Yeah. And I guess I would just, just go back and say that... Um, a lot of the approach in managing keratoconus for me probably took place just a little more than five years ago. If you said, how does it change compared to 10 years ago? I'd say it's radically different, but the jumping on with cross-linking and sclerals, I guess for me has been more in the five to 10 year range. But one thing I do think is interesting as we talk about vision correction is I think I have more patients than ever with keratoconus wearing glasses and soft disposable toric lenses because their conditions are either a caught earlier and 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 stabilized or we've stabilized them at a point where their vision hasn't gone so far downhill that they're unmanageable with more traditional means of correction which is awesome okay any of you fellows tell me how many cross-linking procedures are done annually in the u.s oh, I, I i don't i i can tell you that um i, I don't think we're going to have a, a, a spot-on answer for you right now without um, talking and looking at uh, coding information that's gone through. And that's even a little bit sketchy because the billing and coding for it hasn't been um, as, as long-term as we wanted to. And there's also off-label devices out there that are uh, not being tracked at all within the United States. Uh, still great devices, but they're being used in an off-label procedure. There's no way we can keep track of it. Um, I could tell you that um, it is uh, readily available throughout the United States. And I guess if we're limiting this to discussion to the United States, readily available in the United States, uh, it's readily available um, within the US military. Uh, and so uh, other than cost being a factor for some folks that don't have insurance coverages, I think the accessibility to it is out there. It, it wouldn't shock me if we were in the high, high, high thousands right now. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. So let me just build on that for a second. When you say high, high thousands, do you mean six digits, 100,000 procedures? or I would, say, I would say less than 100,000 procedures. Um, you know, one of the ways you could look at this is to say, okay, well, what's the prevalence and incidence of the disease out there? How many are there in the United States? And then how many of those folks have access to uh, treatment? And just remember, not all patients with keratoconus, obviously, are um, candidates for cross-linking. The, you know, the indication for the treatment 
is progressive keratoconus uh, and post-refractive surgical ectasia. So you have to document the progression first of the disease um, and also uh, in most cases, and then also, also diagnose some sort of post-refractive surgical ectasia. And, and that's how the on-label procedure is right now. But different surgeons are doing it um, using different criteria. We have all the time, I think it, it happens a lot. I would love for Clark to jump in because Clark was actually um, uh, really, uh, while both of us were around in the beginning of cross-linking, me with one device and Clark with another, the one that Clark used is one, is the, the one that Clark worked with is the one that's FDA approved right now. And he'll probably have stronger data uh, from those early numbers. I know we were in the thousands when we were doing ours back in 2010 through 2012 and like three to 5,000 in that ballpark. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't really have a, I don't know that we've done a US database in terms of tracking the number of eyes that were, um, that were treated. Um, and the insurance coverage is a relatively recent development because of the new supply, riboflavin supply code since 2019. So they're getting better reimbursement now ever since that there's a code. Um, so even if you're going to look through insurance billing at some point for cross-linking, you're still tracking more solid data after 2019 and thereby you're still missing a lot of uh, accumulated total numbers. So I don't really have a good answer for that. Okay, that's it. That's pretty good. Jason, do you have anything to add as we wrap this section up? I was just thinking about the sheer number of people with keratoconus or some form of corneal ectasia in our country now and I think it's probably a lot more than we might think off the top because I think the incidents now we're coming to the realization it's probably you know less than one in a thousand probably more like one in a few hundred even so if we have 300 million people in this country we may have a million people with keratoconus that's a lot of people and and the, and the number of diagnoses every year then has to be in the tens of thousands which means again that the number of people who are candidates for some type of procedure like cross-linking to to slow or stop the progression has got to be in the tens of thousands yeah like i so, think the dutch guys said one in 375 or yeah. something like that that's that's correct but they have, for, for prevalence right but they have, but they have a single payer system that they could track through 4.4 million right. charts where we don't really have that system in place in the us right and that was off of uh, billing codes if i remember, remember correctly yeah yeah okay that's great let's wrap this section up that was good guys so uh you know that jason has been holding up his counter there he's usually meaning that i'm being cheap with the rings and and you know he thinks that even though i my function is the moderator that he should keep score also uh, and so uh, jason i ignored every one of your little things like this i understand okay okay I great. Just, you know I, I have to help i have to remind you craig um to to not be chintzy with your bells that's all Chintzy with my bells. You got yeah. it. Okay, thank you. And Jason promised me that he was going to give me his golden buzzer this during this yeah. episode. Yeah. Going to be the winner. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, Jason, two points. I believe I had two before we even started that round. Yeah, so that's but once bad. you did this, I removed them. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> okay, Andy is leading with four. I I am being chintzy because Clark's right behind him with three today. See. I will try to change that. But let's see if we can actually come up with some decent answers. <laughs> Let wow, me ask you this. The brown nosing for me, man. Clark will beat me in the long run. I'm not worried. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that you, you always have a 50% chance of winning on this show, even though there's That's three right. of you guys. That's true. 
Yeah. Craig will make sure I don't get it. the best glasses uh, on the show today. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, so I have a question. You know, I was looking at the American Academy of Ophthalmology website recently, and it was listing the uh, alternatives for the correction of keratoconus. And I think this was would be on their patient site, right? And after they listed, you know, rigid contact lenses, they actually said hard contact lenses was what they said. The next thing that they said was an option was Intex. Is that a surprise to you? Why, that it's not the head of contacts? <laughs> 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 no, it's not a surprise to me. Um, I, I know that. <laughs> I, oh, I'm sorry, Dave. May I interrupt? Is that what you want no, me to do? No, no, no. You don't get to go first anymore. You're right. Uh, Jason got a point there for being funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah. I mean, if, if the point is why, if the question is uh, why is Intex still in the conversation, which I think is. Craig's question. That is that is correct, Claire. Right, and you, if you actually, so there are a couple of things. Number one, uh, if you look at like globally in terms of usage of some sort of intral stromal ring segment, Intex is only one of them. There are many different designs. Um, overseas studies, even studies where they separate treatment, looking at cross-linking Intex and then say topogatic PRK and separated separated them by stage, it actually has a lot of data showing that some sort of intra, intrastromal ring segment gives the most amount of refractive changes to a keratoconus cornea after uh, the cornea has been stabilized. So refractive benefit is there. The only thing is we're more limited in terms of device option in the US. That's number one. Number two, a lot of people, I think, you know, again, going back to the management style, classically, we force, we tell patient, you only have two. You have contact lenses, you have corneal transplant. That's it. You choose what you want, and most people, you know, choose one way or the other. Um, they, I think we get into that mindset that if we could not find a treatment to replace the need for corneal transplant, then it's not worth doing. And therefore, something like Intex gets a lot of bad reputation because it is not supposed to replace corneal transplant. It's supposed to give you a way to possibly defer the need for corneal transplant, such as maybe giving chance of, uh, you know, refresh the corneal contour and give you another chance to fit different type of contact lenses. May I interrupt? You sure. Just to, just to um, not to stop Clark from talking, but I think it's important to point out um, that the goal is not to prevent the corneal transplant from a disease progression perspective, but from a refractive perspective. Is that correct? Yes. That's to say that intacts will not slow down the progression of the disease, and that's very important for everybody to discuss with their patients ahead of time. That's not the design purpose, but we, I think a lot of clinicians mistaken intacts for if it's not going to slow down disease, number one. If it's not going to, number two, if it's not going to replace the need for maybe an eventual corneal transplant, why do it? And I think that's the that's the mistake, that's the confusion that people have. I have plenty of Intex patients who gets another, almost like they get a new release in life where they can get into a different type of contact lenses or get a little bit better usage out of their glasses at night for a couple hours. And they're very, very happy. So I think it's about our education and our understanding. Yeah. I would also add, may I interrupt now or may I talk? Come on. Awesome. I would also add, um, and, uh, you know, uh, Clark and I um, really have, have uh, the pleasure of working with uh, Bill Tulo, who's uh, 
really um, expert upon expert in um, uh, corneal tomography and topography analysis. Um, and he, he says all the time, and he's been saying it since day one, is that uh, you know, intacts are not gonna make your contact lens fit easier. It's gonna make your end result vision hopefully better. Um, and I think that's really important because once these intacts go into the cornea, um, you're, you know, it's not to say that your complex contact lens fit is going to be a simpler process. It, in fact, it could be a more challenging process. And I, I think that's a consideration to take, um, take in ahead of time. I will also add um, one of the things that I've always been confused with about um, intacts, uh, it, it just never made sense to me, is that when you have a patient with keratoconus, you already technically have a patient with a disease of weakened collagen um, where the cornea is obviously starting to bulge. And now you're creating a tunnel um, within that weakened collagen and implanting uh, a polymethyl methacrylate semicircle ring inside of it. My question, and I, I can't prove it anyway because we don't I don't think we have enough um, diagnostic technology to do so, but does, if you already take a weakened cornea and you put a tunnel inside of it, you incise into it, could it destabilize the cornea even more and could you have a weaker cornea afterwards? And that was always um, my big concern and worry. Um, so that's just a consideration that I would put on the table. Yeah, and, and may, I, may I interrupt with actually a relevant point maybe. Um, I, I think to that point, I've also felt not only the, the tunnel, Andy, but also that your your intact is pulling and stretching the cornea to tighten it, if you will. That's the whole idea is you're, you're, you're going to stretch that tissue, if you will. And if, again, if the fibers are already slipping, does pulling it make them slip further? And so I think, you know, intacts in, in probably done in the right way is, is coupled with cross-linking or something to strengthen the cornea when you do it. Um, but the, the, the one thing I think that gave Intex such a bad rap early on was they were, I think they were fairly done indiscriminately when they first were approved for use with keratoconus. And there wasn't a rhyme or reason as to why you would use it on one patient or why you wouldn't use it on another for a lot of doctors. And I think there's a very clear picture of the patient who will benefit from Intex and those who really won't. Um, I, I've seen lots of patients who were disappointed in their Intex outcomes, these were all patients that already had basically 20-20 vision with their rigid contacts. They had a high prescription and Intex wasn't going to get them out of their prescription. And so they had this done and they're still in, in GP lenses and they still have the same vision. They don't see any benefit. I think the patient who Intex benefits most is just like Andy and Clark have said, the ones who have a the, where it remodels the cornea, where it can reduce some of the aberrations that are part of keratoconus by reshaping the posterior float a little bit, and we can get a better refractive outcome. Those low, low to moderate myopes can get a refractive benefit from it too, so they don't need corrective lenses as desperately. And I think, again, if you're selective about who goes into intacts, I think they can be very effective still. Okay, fellas, I have to tell you, that conversation was a heck of a lot more interesting than I expected that stupid question was going to be when I first said it. Uh, that uh, you delivered some really fascinating points, uh, and I think extremely educational. Clark, I'd like to follow up on that with you for just a second. You mentioned a number of the other types of uh, ring segments available elsewhere. Do you foresee any of those entering the U.S. market? 
I have seen a lot of patients coming from different parts, different uh, outside the U.S. to come see me for contact lens fitting. So I have seen many different type of devices implanted. I don't foresee them coming into U.S. now. And that's purely because of, because of the size of the market and the cost to get into the market. Would it be that? Exactly. So, you know, so it, if you look at the two separate things, so if you look at the, and this may be a, a conversation for another day, but we all know recently that corneal inlay, they used to be more than one design. They sort of got thinner because of some of the a recall that had happened and funding that runs out. So when one device gets a little bit of bad reputation because of misunderstanding, there's not as much interest in that in that device. And it's the same thing with Intex. Once you sort of get that misunderstanding, a lot of surgeons that I talk to who are still implanting these devices love them, but enough of our optometric colleagues don't like to refer for them. And so there's not really enough interest there for me to see other devices trying to, device companies trying to spend the funding in getting FDA approval. So I don't foresee anything entering, anything else entering the uh, US market. Okay, okay. that is great. Guys, any more comments about this in-tech discussion at all? I do have one more thing. So I want to go back to what Jason said. My third, remember I talked about the different type of uh, limitations to in-tech and misunderstanding. The third one is about content lens fitting being made difficult, more difficult after in-tech. Granted, I think it may be true if you're talking about corneal GP. I don't think it's true in any other lens devices. And therefore, I think in the diversity of lens designs we have. I'm not quite sure why we keep going back to a lens design that is challenged after intacts when we have plenty of other lens designs that are available. And I think that is another reason for why we tend not to want to refer patients or at least want to, even if patients could be, even if the identification and selection process could be correct, could improve, we're still not gonna get enough patient to benefit from this procedure because ultimately we have enough doctors who think that contact lens fitting um, is made difficult, even though it's doesn't really, that's not true for, for example, scleral lenses or other type of lens design. So I think maybe we could do better than that. Okay, Clark, that, that was excellent. Okay, so round two, Jason, five. Not bad. I'll take it. Andy, five. Weak Ooh. segment, buddy. Really weak. I let him, I let him catch up. <laughs> no pun oh, intended. That's nice too. That segment, is great. no pun intended about impacts, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And Clark is at seven. Uh, and I have to open up the floodgates a little bit more, but I like a tight race. I have to keep tight control so that Jason is at least within a standard deviation of a chance of winning. <laughs> I, I, I so appreciate that, Craig. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. So what I'd like to ask you guys is, you know, typically right now we want to talk just the, for just a second. You know, our sponsor is Oculus, and they make instrumentation that we look at as being the Cadillac in many cases of uh, instruments available. Um, Andy, can you talk a little bit about your experience of working with Oculus and their instrumentation? Yeah, sure. I'd actually love to. Um... So I um, unboxed my first Pentacam in 2005, and uh, I'll never forget it because uh, when I say I unboxed it, it came over from Germany in a box 
uh, and we uh, had a technician come over, take it out, and plug in the device and said, okay, here we go. You're ready to rock and roll, and which was atypical for anything else that we've ever unboxed before. And um, to be quite honest with you, I, I had to learn how great this device actually was. Um, it, to me, and let me, let me just say that um, I don't work for Oculus. Uh, I, don't, I don't take payments from Oculus. This is my opinion. Um, it is absolutely, at the time I was working with TLC in the Rockville office, we're the busiest office in the country, and um, it absolutely changed the game. And we went, you know, that, that's when keratoconus went from a front surface disease to a back surface disease of the cornea for me, because I learned the actual shape and the elevation of the cornea where I really didn't even have a concept of what it was before. Um, we were the first, uh, I think we were the first center of TLC in the United States to get a, a Pentacam. And uh, it was really on us to learn it uh, well. At the time, um, Mike Bellin was uh, still at George Washington University. So he was in town with me at DC and I got to pick his brain, Mike Bellin, uh, being half of the Bell and Ambrosio display group uh, that developed all that analysis material and software within the Pentacam. And, um, you know, I got to, to learn it real time with the expert who is uh, really uh, developing all the software for these, uh, for the analysis for keratoconus with the Pentacam. Um, to answer your question in, in a short statement, um, it is, uh, to me, and this is my personal opinion, unbiased, um, it is the most advanced corneal mapping uh, device commercially available that we have on the market that gives us the most um, uh, the, the broadest understanding of the elevation and shape of the cornea um, in a rapid testing sequence uh, that could be most effective for the diagnosis of disease and also the treatment and management of the disease. Okay, that's great, and I and I think we found our new moderator. <laughs> <laughs> Can you really be the judge of your own personal opinion, not being biased? Because I like there's a, there's a lot of things I like to say about myself too. <laughs> Mark, do you have anything to add there? I do. So I, I, I albeit that Andrew has uh, um, Andy has uh, much unboxed his uh, Pentagon way before I did. I do want to say one thing about another thing about Pentacam, and that is we've stressed in our previous segments about early diagnosis due to the availability of cross-linking since 2016 in terms of FDA approval. I do want to point out for me, though, Pentacam is one instrument that made that early diagnosis a possibility clinically for me. Not that we couldn't diagnose um, keratoconus before with our other instruments and combination of different instruments. You can we could we could pick up a you know retinoscope and look at seizure reflex. We could do placido ring disc video keratoscopy, whatever that you have before. This is it. Really, for me, is a game changer and continues to be the leader in that field, so that I can look at both anterior and posterior elevation profile in detecting keratoconus as early as I possibly can. And that really, I have not found other instruments that really allow me to do that in my clinic. So it's one thing that I just feel like I really do not, I, for the time being, I cannot live without for my patient care. Okay, <laughs> that really is great. Yes, and Andy. That is, um, and that is also not biased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, just, to, just to add, and, you know, Clark and I have been lecturing on this and, just, and teaching this, uh, more importantly, to students and 
uh, other eye care professionals for years. Um, you know, I, I have been out of school long enough where I was in school during uh, the CLEC study and Heidi Wagner at Nova Southeastern um, was my contact lens chief. Um, and so she taught us everything about topography and anterior segment evaluation, uh, you know, anterior surface evaluation. Um, and it really, learning all that stuff and learning how GPs work with keratoconus and the whole, uh, if you remember the FIDACL um, uh, fitting guidelines, it, it changed, the Pentacam changed everything. You know, um, it, it changed our whole concept of understanding of it. Not to say that any of that information was bad, it was amazing. And I, I, for the record, I want to say Heidi was an unbelievable, and the whole staff there was an unbelievable contact lens team. Um, but it, it just changed. I, we were in school at a certain time. I don't know when, uh, Jason, when you graduated um, from optometry school. I graduated in 99. But, you know, with the advent of the Pentacam and with understanding posterior elevation of the cornea, the entire everything about the understanding of keratoconus changed within my career of optometry. And that's one of the things I find so fascinating about it. The key linchpin to that whole uh, dynamic shift in the understanding of how the cornea works with this disease is the Pentacam. And um, in no uncertain terms, like Clark said, I, I, it's my favorite to buy. I couldn't go to work without it to see these patients now. Hey, okay. Andy. Andy, yeah. uh, I just talked to Heidi. She sends a ding for you. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that, that was pretty cool guys i mean that the uh of course we know these are unrehearsed and not even brought up normally until the moment i ask you guys your opinion and uh those are really uh, unbelievable testimonials uh on how well the instrumentation works uh so to close up on things today we'd like to just have a little crystal ball and look in the future and you know jason i'll start with you now, where, where do you think we will be in five years from now in the management of keratoconus? Well, um, I'd like to think that we're going to see continued improvements in how we deliver cross-linking in a way that um, puts the cornea at less risk, even though the risk's small now. I mean, just, you know, increasingly doing it um, in the least invasive way possible. I think we're going to... Um, be correcting higher order aberrations more routinely in our contacts. I think that's going to be there in five years. So we'll be giving our cone patients better vision. Um, and, you know, as far as the concept of like a topo guided PRK, um, ablation to try to re-smooth the cornea, I think that's a possibility. I'm not, um, I'm not, I haven't looked at enough maps to feel 100% confident that we're not altering the posterior float on some of these, but uh, it would be great if um, if the data on that was such that we could prove and know for certain that doing those types of uh, ablations wouldn't cause progression. I think we'd see more of that too. Okay, that's great, Andy. Uh, sure, you know it's a it's a great question, and I want to uh, make sure I don't mince my words when I say this. Um, keratoconus is a disease of uh, a weakened cornea. It's a weakened collagen disease. And uh, with devices like the Pentacam and soon to be others, I'm sure there's going to be uh, more advances in, in the diagnostic field in the future. There always is in medicine. Um, we can de de detect this disease earlier and earlier with every iteration of machinery um, that comes out. 
We also know that um, the earlier we diagnose, the better it is for the patient. And with cross-linking, we know we can halt this disease in place. Um, keratoconus, and like I said, I don't want to mince my words, keratoconus is an optometric disease. And what I mean by that is that we're, uh, there are more optometrists out there. Uh, we are the front lines of primary eye care. Uh, we are these, we're seeing these families um, and these kids at a very early age. We can identify this disease as early as possible and treat it as early as possible. And quite frankly, uh, with cross-linking now, the only incisional surgery required for this disease of keratoconus is a corneal transplant or a partial thickness corneal transplant. Um, if with corneal, corneal cross-linking, we can eliminate that from happening, the only time the patient would have to leave to go to the ophthalmologist is if our cross-linking procedure didn't work and progress to the point where they needed some sort of um, incisional procedure, whether it's a femtosecond or a blade to remove the cornea. Uh, that being said, uh, I think this disease in the future, you're gonna see it identified, diagnosed, treated by an optometrist with cross-linking in the doctor of optometry's practice and then fit into advanced medical contact lenses afterwards. Those patients are gonna stay in our offices uh, for the most part, they're not going to leave. I believe that optometrists will, uh, in 50 states, be able to provide cross-linking uh, in the future. If you look at the technology right now by uh, Farhad Hafezi over in Europe, he's developed a slit lamp mounted cross-linking device. So these treatments can be done directly at the slit lamp in a very short uh, time frame. Uh, I believe this is, um, like I said, keratoconus is a optometric disease and it should stay in our practices. What do you think about that, Andy? Do you think it's at the primary care optometric level or will it be at the specialty optometric level? So I, do you I see that fitting in? I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> you may. Oh, thank you. Um, so I, I think it's going to be, you know, just like we have right now, certain optometrists choose to do certain procedures and they, they, they stick with what they're good at. Um, you know, Shame on you if you come to Clark or my offices with a big fat retinal hole or detachment. Uh, you know, we're, we're in- for yourself. I'm pretty good at retina. Okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Canadian retina, not, not American retina. <laughs> um, and and I, I joke when I say that, but I think it's going to be by choice. I think certain optometry, doctors of optometry are going to have subspecialties within their practice that they're going to feel comfortable with. And I think every doctor, whether they're an optometrist or not, should, should, stay, should stay in their wheelhouse with what they have expertise in and what they feel comfortable with treating their patients. If they don't, <clears throat> the option to refer is always there. Excellent. Clark? Yeah, um, I take a slightly different angle than both of them, as always. Um, I think, so, you know, before I, I give you my conclusion, I, we did a small, uh, we did a study reviewing 329 uh, uh, re chart review for 329 eyes when I was doing my clinical fellowship. And uh, we looked at patients who coming in wanting surgical intervention because of the fact that they've given up on contact lenses. And then, so we broke them down in groups of people who were doing relatively okay, um, not great with their content lenses, asking them if they would consider being refit by me first prior to, if they failed, then maybe go on to having either cross-linking intacts or topo PRK or kind of other uh, potential surgery. So if, when we looked at the two subgroup, those who agreed to be refit by me versus those who decided that they don't want to, they want to get surgery before seeing how well they do, maybe if they don't need content lenses, and if they do, they're not upset, they'll come back to me. 
So if you look at the success rate of their uh, um, prior to being refit by me and prior to surgery, um, the, the group that went with surgery had about 40% or less success rate prior. And then the group had the group that were that agreed to be refit by me had about 60, 70% uh, um, hotel intolerance. They both went to a, a nearly 100% after either refit by me or after surgery and then come back to me. So, of course, you can draw a conclusion that I'm just such a good confidence fitter, almost as good as Jason, Craig, and Andy. But I take another, I take a different route. <laughs> I take the route that confidence has synergistic effect with different type of surgeries on the cornea. So I think in the future, what you're going to see with all the advancement we have in contact lenses, and they are excellent, um, and thanks to our people like Jason who can keep giving us better tools to use, but patients are always... Too much pandering. Keep going. Patients are always going to want to try to do the easiest route, so that means they're going to ask for combination surgery. They're going to have cross-linking and topo-guided PRK. They're going to have cross-linking intacts, topo-guided PRK. They may even have intacts. They may have uh, even asked for cross-linking. And there's a new procedure called CAIRS, which is an allograft that is um, transplanted tissue to be made into an intact shape and then implanted into the cornea so that you don't have to worry about synthetic material in the cornea. So I think there's a lot of refractive surgical options for keratoconus patients as long as it's combined within with cross-linking and we could fit them in contact lenses in the future because hopefully they're going to be even easier patients to fit after all those surgeries. But I think that is the future of keratoconus management. Thank you, Clark. Excellent. I, I do want to compliment Clark here um, for something that uh, he and, and uh, Barry Iden as well has, we've always discussed this and they've always harped on this is that you know, generally, generationally right now, we're moving to different types of contact lenses and not to take anything away from scleral contact lenses right now, um, but what Clark has always told me in his clinic, certain corneas do well with different contact lenses. And I think it's really important not to forget the entire armamentarium of, of specialty contact lenses that we have. Um, you know, Clark, I, and I, I've seen it, and I've seen his cases uh, um, on paper and stuff that we presented where, you know, everybody might be going to a, a scleral lens on a first try for a, a certain type of patient where Clark probably uh, thinks that he can probably fit that patient better with better visual outcome with a gas permeable lens. Um, there are certain lenses that still work great, even though they're not new, hot and sexy right now. And I think it's important for each patient to be treated as an individual. Uh, and Clark is a, obviously a tremendous advocate for uh, that individualized contact lens fitting. Excellent, Jason. Oh, I got nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> he gets a point. See, that's my best get, my no. best bet right there. He gets a point for really stating a fact we agree with. <laughs> okay. Guys, that was fantastic. Let me just say this, that, that I thought that for sure Clark was winning with the pandering. Because he did a really, really good job with that. It usually happens. But then Andy recovered pretty quickly there at the end. Can I throw out a few? Can I throw out a few more? Come yeah, on. I know. It, it's too late. It's too late. That uh, it was fantastic. So I know you can read this. What I'll it says hold, is. Hold that up one more time. I just want to take a screenshot so I can email it to Clark every day for the next month. <laughs> okay, I will. Right here. See this? <laughs> a little higher. There you go. Andy wins by one. Oh, wow. Wait, how do you how do you do the uh There you go. <laughs> really? 
I think that, I, that I think you should take a, I think you should take a point away for him just doing that right now. Was that supposed to be a Heisman look? No, I think that was the guy, uh, the runner from Jamaica. What's his name? <laughs> a Bolt. Oh, Bolt. yeah. Give him a point. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, in all seriousness, that the um, as we bring this to a close, this is really a fantastic time here today that uh, I think more than anything is the educational value of what you've been able to deliver for us today. Uh, understanding a little bit more of where we're at with keratoconus, uh, this discussion of cross-linking and looking into the future. Uh, I think really it's a very, very interesting um, episode that we had. And I really thank you both for your time. Jason, do you have any comments to close? Uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. And um... You know, again, it's always great to to have guests here who have such a, a deep knowledge of a subject and can share it like this. So I appreciate both of you guys being here today and uh, just getting to learn from you. Excellent. Totally thank you. agree. Thank you. Clark, so thank you. Andy, thank you. Jason, of course, as always, thank you, my friend. And thank you all for either watching or listening. Uh, May I Interrupt episodes are available on YouTube. Uh, and also the podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you want to download them from. Thank you very much for listening and watching.